Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Another hashing it out. Personal interview with Rick Dudley from Vulcanize. What's up, Rick? Hi. Let's uh, do the normal thing. Tell us who you are, what you do, where you came from. Sure. Name's Rick Dudley. Um, I'm the founder and you know principal at Vulcanize Inc. Um, primarily, what we focus on is mechanism design for L1s and um, for small federated networks. So like sort of like proof of stake federated networks, any kind of L1, uh, we help them to make sure that their mechanisms are incentive aligned and that there isn't some opportunity for uh, one of the users of the system to really exploit and take advantage of the system. Um, Related to that work, we also do uh, software development. So we uh, managed uh, the early uh, part of EIP 1559. I'm a co-author on that EIP as as a result of that. Um, and we wrote the reference implementation, which I believe none of it was used, but that was actually what sort of got the conversation um, going uh, in terms of how to actually implement it. Um, and then we are also, uh, Vulcanize Inc. is a core contributor to the Cosmos SDK. Um, so we are working on migrating away from IAVL to uh, uh, a, a sparse Merkle tree uh storage uh for their for that chain which is something that's also happening uh in a very different way um on ethereum as well there's a move Mm to uh smt on quote-unquote eth1 um so yeah so we and then we also have our own internal project which i'll talk about a little more but um yeah vulcanized db is the main product uh that vulcanized developed um and it allows for um, any individual running an archive node of Ethereum, a Geth archive node, to um, generate a third-party verifiable proof of any arbitrary data in Ethereum. So if you have a list of logs and you want to generate a proof of that, if you have a list of contract slots and you want to generate a proof of that, or of course the more traditional proofs, uh, ETH balances and account states, we can generate proofs for all of those things. And uh, maybe we'll get into it more, but that's a very powerful tool and it allows you to do almost like magical things in terms of um, taking a subset of the Ethereum data and converting that into its own blockchain. Um, And that's sort of how we're positioning it in the future. So you'll see that in a later announcement, but. Interesting. You touched on two, two things that. I'm relatively fascinated by, which are incredibly important to this industry, but don't get a lot of attention. And that is like infrastructure, like difficulties in infrastructure, yeah. as well as uh, like mechanism design versus game theory, like the like the crypto economics and how people can like the rules of a given game and how people can manipulate them, and then the difficulty of building systems in such the way that like. Um, a small number of participants can't have overwhelming power over everyone else. Right. And, yeah. and, and thinking about that from the beginning, 
which is which is mechanism design versus manipulating it in during the game which is game theory yeah that's a great definition uh i appreciate you giving that a lot of people don't even people in the space don't oftentimes bother to explain that and so yeah absolutely i mean for me i got into the space to facilitate the right to exit um to sort of allow people to resist hegemonic influence i mean that's what has always been important to me and so i've always thought about the the fairness in the game whatever you know we're making these games basically so like what is my sense of fairness and that's another thing that actually took me a really long time it it really took me years of being in the crypto space before i understood like that a lot of people in finance or people with financial backgrounds have a consistent sense of fairness amongst themselves that is very different from like mine, which is also different from like uh, your average person, Mm -hmm. your average American's sense of fairness. You know, finance people screw each other over all the time and they jump back in the ring and they go at it again and they, and they think it's fair. It's it's like a, they're just based on the, like a hard assumption, like axiomatic that like it's a zero sum game and that's how you do things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That they're, and they're very competitive people. I mean, I used to work sort of coincidentally on wall street. I, I wasn't really in finance, strictly speaking, but the, the company had reasons to be on wall street. And, you know, when you're walking down the streets there, I'm, I'm six feet tall. I was oftentimes the shortest guy. If I went to get a coffee or, you know, I, and, you know, there's all like college football players and like just really tall, huge people. And, um, it's just that competitiveness and that aggressiveness, uh, is rewarded on trading floors where again, it, it is oftentimes perceived to be zero sum. And I think that, is it really zero sum? I think we designed finance to be zero sum and business at large is obviously not zero sum. So okay, we sort yeah. of take in a lot of the parts of business that might be zero sum and we sort of shoved it all into finance where we let all the like all these like rabid animals fight it out for the zero sum stuff and then we try to take the the you know net positive stuff. I, unfortunately I think in America we sort of abandoned the treatment of the net positive. But uh, we try to separate that out. And I think that's just sort of an emergent thing, right? I, I don't think anyone designed that, but it does seem to be what happened. Mm-hmm. How, how, what, what difficulties have you faced in the process of trying to help people understand that? Like you said, you, you do, like, I know Vulcanize does a lot of consulting. You've helped with a lot of these early projects and specifically in mechanism design and trying to make sure, like, what do you want the system to do? Who do you want the players to be and how much influence can they have and how do they gain it? Like what type of like, what's your experience in these conversations as you're building these things with, with clients? Yeah. So there's a lot of different experiences. One experience, well, there's three, three major points I'm going to bring up. One, a lot of people just have no idea what a blockchain is or what it does. It's just a buzzword. Someone told them they should add one. So early on, (laughs) I spent a lot of time convincing people that they don't need a blockchain. Um, and really going through that process with them being like, well, you actually don't even have, if you only have, uh, two parties in your system, two entity types in your system, like a buyer and a seller, then usually, excuse me, like Google AdWords, like, or AdSense, whichever one it is, I don't know. But like in those marketplaces, well, that's actually an interesting example. Well, okay. Let's imagine for a minute that Google actually worked the way they claim it works where there is an auctioneer, a buyer of ads, and a seller of ads. The auctioneer is supposed to be neutral, and the buyers and sellers 
either have symmetry or they don't. And so because you're, that system sort of is going to naturally move in a direction that doesn't really need a quote unquote, doesn't really need a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Now here's where it's actually, this is a great example. I didn't even realize this. <laughs> now, the reason that sort of ad marketplace would need a blockchain is because, oh, wait, it turns out that Google is triple dipping. Google is on all sides of that market. So if you're trying to compete fairly against the auctioneer in an auction, you're going to have a bad time, mm-hmm. right? There's The auctioneer is just going to stomp you every time. It's like going to a casino. Like the house always wins. Yeah, but, it's you worse know, you than might, that. You may, the, yeah. <laughs> the casino tells you that, that they're going to take all your money. They tell you that right. right when you show up. Google has been um, not exactly forthright uh, it, it, with the fact that, they, that they're on all sides of that marketplace. So, um, so you're in that market, and maybe they weren't at the beginning, right? Maybe when they, those marketplaces started, they weren't as active as a participant on the, on the buying of ad side, for example. But over time, they became more and more significant in that, in that, part, in that role, and, and it skewed the whole system. And that's why you need a blockchain, is because you, if you set up your system and you know, oh, this auctioneer is going to have too much power, but the, so like, imagine if you're starting that out, if you're starting that out as a company and you have no money and you're just some plain old company and you're trying to get ads from all these big people like Facebook or Coca-Cola or whatever, you would say, look, I'm going to make this fair marketplace. There's three of us. There's, I'm going to, I'm going to federate this auctioneer service. So you get a cut. So Coke can be an auctioneer sometimes. Um, you know, Facebook can be an auctioneer sometimes. I'll be an auctioneer sometimes. That way we can't cheat each other. Uh, and we'll all, uh, you know, basically you'll say, okay, Coke, maybe me and Facebook cheat you every time we run an auction, but when you run your own auctions, you cheat us and everything balances out. And we all run the auctions one third of the time. And that, that's basically, I mean, that's, that's like, I just described like 95% of the blockchains or something. Yeah. I'm trying to like, cause I've always, how I've explained this to various people over the years has changed, um, more or less, I guess maybe it depends on the audience and maybe my ability to, to structure it in a better metaphor, but it's like, I try to explain it in, in, in the perspective of, um, setting up a system so that you limit the, like you are very clear about the power distribution in the beginning of the individual participants. So like basically like how much influence any participant can have in the very beginning. And then the dynamics of the system that limit their ability to gain power over time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like in, in, in a way, cause I, I, I would, I, I've, I've railed against this. I think that the majority of the problems we have in today's, you know, big tech companies come from an emergent property that just wasn't thought about in the beginning. And that's mostly based on like how you build applications, which emerge into centralizing a tremendous amount of data. And then the ability to manipulate that because they have it and they have, like, they have to be good custodians of it. So they're very, very keen on understanding what it is. And then they realize like, oh, we can make money off this and not what we set out to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so like, yeah, you know, so like the, the, what we're doing now is being very cognizant of potential emergent scenarios such that we don't end up in the exact same scenario we are today. And that is like, all right, so how do we set it up so that it's fair today? And then how do we set the dynamics of this system up such that it doesn't end up in the same way where like one person has control over everything and no one can say anything about it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. 
I mean, that is absolutely what we're doing. I mean, to me, I, I mean, I use sort of more, uh, it depends again, it depends on the audience, but yeah. I come from a physics thing. background. So it all just kind of, it all just kind of merges into like multivariate optimization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or another. Yeah. Uh, hill climbing is what we use in computer science, you know, uh, you know, trying to find the global maxima. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I say, you know, resisting hegemonic influence, right? Like, I don't want this because that's that's basically, I mean, Facebook literally has air balloons flying over parts of Africa so that they can send them free, quote unquote free internet. But the, 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 the criteria is that the, actually, I don't know if Facebook uses air balloons, but however they're distributing their free internet, <laughs> they do it in exchange for those people only have internet access if they have a Facebook account. I mean, can you, that's like, when you think about hegemonic influence, it's hard to imagine in a modern era, something more, um, you know, non-community based than that. There's a person from a foreign country deploying billions of dollars to get this other country's citizenry to sign up to, you know, this very um, psychoactive uh, business. You know, I mean, using Facebook is extremely psychoactive. It, it, it's extremely mind altering. Um, and it's hard to imagine a more hegemonic influence uh, than that. And so, yeah, we do have to resist that. And and it's, it is it is sort of frustrating to, I mean, I think you, like me, have some interest in the history of computer science, the history of uh, the internet as a business, you know, how how's, how's the businesses evolved. I mean, people had no idea what they, they had no plan at all in, in 2001. You know, and so that's how we ended up with a lot of these businesses is it was sort of the first it was the first thing people came up with um, as a business. And I, yeah, I, I think, of course, our first business is going to be probably a little rough, a little exploitive. Right. And, and you have to, you know, refine it and and move forward. But there's just the way money works, the way the centralizing nature of money uh, there's a lot of resistance to changing things once you found something that works. Are we doing the same thing? Because it feels like we're doing the same thing. Uh, um, it's, because it's, like it's it's one of those like okay when you make it when you make a innovative technology that that transcends the boundaries of what you previously have, it'll it gives you more options. You can do more things. You can create things that have never been created. The first thing people do is to recreate the same shit with the new technology. Yeah, and and that's 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 what we've seen so far. Is it going to get better, or are we going to just snowball ourselves into the same track well it's the same people so it's the same so because it's the same people they're doing the same thing and i think as long as you have so on one sense that means it's generational i'm not i'm not i mean i'm obviously uh you know black but i'm not making it into like a i'm not going to say it's like old white men because i don't think that's really what it is i think it's People from the old world are the first people in the new world, and they haven't adapted to the, the norms of this new place and new capabilities. They're just taking their old mentality and bringing it to a new, a new like. Means this is what I do. How do I do this here? Yeah, yeah, and of course, and because again, because we accept. So this is something I used to say. I worked at Consensus in 2015. And one of the things that I didn't, sometimes my filter is on like during this and then other times in life, my filter is off. And so one of the things I said at consensus that immediately I realized, oh, I like, I should have realized before I opened my mouth. 
we have we build all these systems like proof of stake systems and these people are always talking about like you said a new economy but we 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 ask people to participate by providing dollars and i used to say someone said that to me and right away i said but there's billionaires how how can we have a fair system if the way that you get into the system is by buying in and there's billionaires because even if you have millionaires and billionaires that's too much you know we could say we're all millionaires well there's still billionaires so you look, yeah, I did a bunch of distribution analysis of early ICOs and it, like the, the narrative, the popular narrative was like, this is the most inclusive thing we've ever had. The distribution is so equal. It's like it's we've we've allowed a lot of people to be a like a, a participant in these systems. And you look at the distribution analysis, the ICOs, it's like, no, I mean, like they're, they're here, but they have no influence. Yeah, like no, we've no, allowed no. more people to, to participate, but it's still like a few people holding all the, all the value or yeah. power for that matter. And 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 all those people, and I I know some of them, and I'm friends with some of them, and they were wealthy. You know, they're they're from whatever. I mean, they're from a wide array of wealthy backgrounds. A whole mm-hmm. the every type of wealth you can imagine um, participated uh, in that in that activity. Um, and I and those are the people that pay me. You know, those are my patrons. Like I'm, I'm very forthright about. It. I don't have any problem saying that. And but I'm trying to build systems with that money where I would actually have a chance. Where uh, someone who has, I mean, and I'm from a, a decent background. I mean, people with even less would have some chance, right? I mean, there's a threshold. You have to be literate. A lot of Americans. I mean, we're on this podcast. You know, we're in the crypto space. But when you really like go outside, like a lot of people aren't literate. Like it's not like we have a 99% literacy rate in America. Like there's people who just liter- quite frankly cannot read well enough to participate in crypto. Like they mm-hmm. just don't have that reading comprehension. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make them bad people or anything. But when we're talking about you know inclusiveness and all these things, you have to realize there's table stakes. There's a minimum amount that you have to bring to the table. And part of that is being able to read and identify, maybe scammy isn't the right word, but identify the risk, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to read what's being published by whomever, by sock puppets, by trolls, by honest people, and evaluate the risk from that. And that requires like a fair amount of intellectual sophistication. Maybe you're uneducated and, and you have, and you've cultivated that yourself. I mean, that happens with a lot of people, but we can't pretend like that's like a given in humans. Like it's, it's something that is, is frankly not common. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I am trying to build more, more equitable systems. I think a lot of people in the space are trying to build more equitable systems. And frankly, the, 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 my patrons are, are these people who already have money and, and some of them want to build more equitable systems. And again, this goes back to what I was saying before, Sometimes when I'm talking to these people, they have finance backgrounds and and it sort of turns out that their sense of fairness and my sense of fairness don't quite match up. And when they say they want to make a more equitable system, they want to make a better zero sum game or they mm-hmm. or they want to give themselves as the house a better edge. And so we're saying, what 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 is it like when I talk to people? That that was the other filter. So the first filter is like, OK, you don't need a blockchain and sort of going through why you might need a blockchain. And then the other filter was, um, you know, you know I, I'm not, I'm not making, I'm not giving the house a better, better edge. I'm not, that's not what I'm, that's not my business. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't need to be in the, A, I'm not, 
I'm not the right person for that. There's people who are much better than that because it is more like traditional finance. So you can just go ask one of them and they're way better at that than I am. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting those people sort of through, um, through the filter and, and filtering those people out. Um, and then uh, what was the third type of person that I tried to filter out over time? So there's other, there's this other thing where there's, uh, I feel really bad. Like I said, there's a lot of people who want to participate. There's a lot of people who want to get involved and they just don't have the skills or they don't have the organization or however you want to put it. So I try to do a certain amount of work where I'm not getting paid. I, I wouldn't call it pro bono work, but I, I'm not taking cash up front. I mean, most of my clients have to pay cash. I mean, my client days are basically over, but in the past, my clients, it was cash and token compensation. And mm-hmm. some people just only, they only have equity and I, and I, but I like directionally what they're doing. So I work for equity, which has proven to be, um, not saying that of all of my clients, but some of it has like provably gone. I've had more equity provably go to zero than tokens, right? The tokens, there's still some hope somewhere. Where those equity deals, if they go to zero, they really go to zero. I don't know if that's going to be forever. Uh, we haven't really seen the like the, the mechanism of tokens go to zero because there's always some community left over. Yeah, doing yeah. something with them because basically because of hype cycles and like the 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 effect that value has with echo chambers, like bag holding in this industry exacerbates the hype. Because oh, like absolutely. I bought this, therefore it needs to succeed. Therefore, I'm ignoring everything else and just pumping this thing because I'm reliant upon it. It it's succeeding, and I don't care about anything else, right? So like I've seen, I've seen quality people get a certain amount and then basically lose their ability to be objective about everything else and the thing that they're actually holding because of the fact that they're holding it and they want it to go up. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's. Um... Definitely one of the riskier elements of, of the space is is that um, and I don't and that, I think that's worse for like the 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 people who are you know illiterate that lack the faculties to like suss out scamminess or develop a sense of objectivity that 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 isn't directly associated with their personal bubble. Yeah, I, I mean I. Yeah, I think about different communities that I interact with and different people that I've that I knew in my personal life who then got into crypto and trying to figure out like how did they navigate that? Like how did they not end up holding, you know, some token, you know, to the, you know, you know, way past the point and and that's another thing that really bothers me is people don't talk about realized gains. Like mm-hmm. to your point, like no, you don't have gains. There, you have to realize the gains and, yeah. and you have to figure out and then even then again to, to literacy and sophistication if you're trying to accumulate bitcoin which i think is a perfectly valid pursuit then you have to realize your gains in bitcoin right and that's and that's a level of sophistication like that i don't see enough of on crypto twitter i i also heavily filter but like you know when you talk to OG Bitcoiners, they don't talk to you about the. They literally talk to you about the price of stuff in Bitcoin, because that's that's their their Bitcoin. They've they're yeah. they've. I have this much Bitcoin, and this is the mining power of my Bitcoin in yeah. Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they've completely transitioned. They don't think about dollars anymore. 
and and you know when you have people who are like oh this guy bought you know eight thousand dollars worth of sheep and now he has five hundred million dollars worth of sheep or whatever it is it's like no that's the you're a, you're you're a fiat maximalist like yeah you, you, <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like we're talking about bitcoin maximalism ETH, you know all this stuff and you're over here talking about fiat maximalism you need to understand that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but that's a whole different world than what i'm interested in and and where i hope that we we get to i don't think the dollar is this I mean, I think it is hegemonic, which is very bad, but the, 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 the mechanisms of the dollar as a fiat currency, okay, there's some really bad mechanisms. It served as a wonderful reference for yes. most people because it is the world reference for most yes. part, right? So like if you, if, you, if, you have to, if you have to consolidate with those around you around the, the buying power of something and like the unit of measure for that, the dollar is the, is, is the canonical way to do that. And so that's what people use. They're like, okay, how much is this is a dollars? Because I understand that metric and it's very difficult for people to do like what's known as dimensional analysis on all these weird tokens to then redefine their standard of, 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 of buying power. Like if you, the process of just using Bitcoin as your standard of value, and then comparing everything else to that is not easy. No, like switching true. switching over to that, and that's probably the the easiest one across all like all yeah. the crypto because it's it's the largest and most prevalent. So like like that concept is very difficult for people in general, and so it's hard for me to because I, I imagine this world where like we go back to the barter system because we no longer have the coincidence of wants problem yeah. because we have these decentralized exchange, so I can give you whatever you want. Yeah. for the exact price of like whatever you have. Yeah. And but like that becomes a completely different way of thinking about what you own and what it can do. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I mean right to your point, I I I think about I think about all of so all, I personally don't hold a lot of crypto. Uh Vulcanize holds most of the crypto in case anyone from the IRS is listening it's a legal, and asking, it's a legal move. <laughs> yeah. Um, about my tax returns. Um, so, uh, and, and vulcanizes liabilities are in dollars. So I think in, so I think in, in dollars because vulcanize has your jurisdiction. Yeah. And we, and we have to pay, uh, people. Right. And, and one of the things that is also very fascinating about this space is what quality of developer, and it's not to say, I don't mean quality like good or bad, but like there's like, you know, like more like subtle quality. What kind of developer do you get who wants cash? What kind of developer do you want who takes some cash and some crypto? What kind of developer do you get that takes only crypto? You know, those, those are very different types of people. And depending on what kind of business you're running, maybe you need people who only take cash and you're only offering crypto. Well, you're, mm. you're going to have a really hard time. Can you can you give uh, what's your experience in those different those those different personas? More senior developers who have less crypto experience want dollars. The equivalent developer or engineer who would take crypto is already uh, uh, a synonymous crypto millionaire, and they won't well, they don't talk to you. They're like, "Hey, Rick, how's it going?" I'm like, "Great. Do you need a job?" Have- He's like. No, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to work forever. Like, yeah. So, so there, those people exist. There are early Bitcoin. They're ideologically that, driven. That's what they yeah. are. They're not, yeah. they're not, they're not financially driven. Right. And so you can find, you can find them and, and some people are able to persuade them and, and get them to work on their projects. But 
and that's not my personality. I'm, I'm, uh, I made a decision probably too young to, to be very like a straight shooter and not try to persuade people too much. Um, and so I just say, look, I want to build this thing. I have these dollars. Do you want dollars? And if people come back and they say, <laughs> that thing is doing a lot of stuff with ETH. Maybe I could get some ETH too. I'll be like, yeah, sure. Okay. And that's usually how I, how I pitch it. And then I, and then part of how Vulcanize has been able to function as a business is we take traditional um, engineers, developers, and we train them in what we need them to do, as opposed to going out and trying to find a smart contract developer who's literally going to be nearly half the age and charge three to four times as much. And that's in terms of, you know, that value, it can be worth it for some businesses, but that's, it's not worth it for my business to, to, to make that deal. So. Yeah. Gaining that wisdom may not, it depends on you, basically your ability to, to, to foster that training because there aren't a lot of uh, quality educational materials out there to allow people to get there on their own outside of sheer grit and experience. Yep. Like I, Securium is one of the efforts I think is going to, that has potential to be a very good on-ramp for smart contract auditors, but there's not a lot of like quality, what I would consider traditional academic material to get someone from the traditional world and adapt them into this ecosystem in a short amount of time. So like your ability to do that is on you. And so you're absorbing a lot of that risk of, is this developer going to be able to absorb the correct fast enough to not make the standard mistakes that you would, you would, you would uh, avoid if you hired that expensive half the age crypto developer? Yeah. Yeah. And so also we don't do a lot of solidity work. So that's really, that helps, that helps enormously. Right. And so when we have done solidity work, I have gone to hire um, you know, more, more wise people, let's say, um, yeah, and, I'm, in a, and I'm it, a similar it, vein. I'm, I'm it's status. Most of the stuff we do is infrastructure that supports yeah. solidity stuff. So like we're looking for network engineers and things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Distributed systems and scientists and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we're mostly pretty in the weeds looking for go engineers to implement, you know, SMT or, uh, fork geth. I mean, we've done a lot of work in our geth fork. And and that's the interesting thing is you can actually bring up an engineer pretty quickly to work on that low level stuff, but then they don't, they're kind of like blind, like a normally, like if you have an engineer, um, um, any engineering, actually mechanical engineering, whatever you have a test harness, you have a test environment, you have a structure that whatever you're building, you can test it within and, and you as the builder also uh, either within your organization or somehow you are able to create those test harnesses. And one of the things that's been a huge issue for us at Vulcanize in 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 bootstrapping um, this sort of core infrastructure type work is that uh, we literally can't test it. Um, it, it, I, it takes, we've, we would need to buy, like right now, for example, if uh, I'm trying to figure out how to ship like $30,000 worth of hardware to a developer so that they mm. can have a server so that they can reasonably test some of the things that we're doing with level DB and the full Ethereum 
you know, 10 yeah. plus terabyte database. Well, how do we, how are we able to get those operations done in a week? Well, we, we spent, you know, $30,000 building a machine. That machine is sitting in a rack. We only have one of them. <laughs> how do I, how does the developer yeah. test on that while we're running in production? Oh, I just buy another one. And it's like, oh, and the reason I'm so cavalier about these numbers is because try running that process in AWS. It'll cost you $28,000 a month. Yeah. So throwing $30,000 on hardware. A reusable machine. <laughs> yeah. And that amortizes. I mean, the, 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 you know, it, pay, it literally pays for itself in two months. So there's, it's for, so, so, and again, I'm old enough where I can do that, where I've, I've, I've worked on bare metal. I've worked in AWS. I've built, I've done both. I know where one is good and one is bad. And we're looking at these workflows that we're doing. And we're like, well, there's no way we can take this workflow. And, and you know, I've actually, hilariously, I'm so familiar with these numbers because we did try to take a batch process, something that we only need to do in theory once. And we, and we have been trying to run it in AWS. And it's, and it's uh, and no, no, it doesn't have anything to do with, no disrespect to AWS, but it performs horribly in AWS. Um, we've had to take it to bare metal. And we did that. I mean, we've been doing that for years. And I was just like, okay, well, maybe let's try AWS this one time. Let's not wait to build the hardware this time. Let's because you have to get the parts shipped. Someone has to build them. It has to get racked. Not so, a very good supply chain scenario at this point either. Yeah, yeah. On top of everything else, yeah, the supply chain. Yeah, the supply chain's been messed up for a while, but yeah, yeah, it's really bad. So there's all these hurdles, and so I was like, okay, let's just try AWS. And then you know we looked at it, and it's just it's just funny. I mean, you you literally spend in a month. You you've built the you've built you could have built the machine. So, um. So yeah, that's I think honestly, when we're talking about challenges in in the blockchain space, that what I'm talking about right there is a is like is like a it's worse than an elephant in the room, right? If you look at something like BSC, or you look at uh, Polygon, <laughs> or you look at um, Solana, or there's so many projects where, like in Solana's case, it's sort of the they're sort of the exceptional because what they did is they had a bunch of uh, IT experience. And so they just sort of said, okay, well, we'll just build this chain as if you're an IT expert. Yeah. And well, so our, our solution to everything is throw hardware at it. And that's yeah. the way it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work in my opinion, but that's the, that's the, that's the main goal of throw hardware at it. It'd be fine. Yeah. I think, I think Solana is interesting out of those three because they, I personally, I, you know, I, I respect them. I don't, I don't, I don't think they're scammers or anything. No, I don't think they're scammers. I just yeah. think it's a, it's a matter of, it's a scaling issue in my opinion. You can't, you can only, you can only scale to a certain level because hardware is going to limit you well, bandwidth in a lot of ways, but like, yeah. yeah, their narrative doesn't really match up with what they've built in my opinion. And I, I don't know whose fault that is. And maybe I'm wrong, but to me, it, to your point, it feels like, their scalability narrative, their Byzantine fault tolerance narrative, the fact that you have to, it all is, like you said, is net, is network bound and hardware bound. That's not really comparable to ETH1 or Bitcoin, right? It's not, it's an interesting system worth discussing and worth building, but it's not a, a decentralized blockchain at all. It's not even a federated blockchain. It's very much a centralized system that requires you know, peering agreements in order to function. Um, and I love peering agreements. I think they're actually a great example of decentralization and more people in the blockchain space should familiarize themselves with them. But that's not what 
a theory. That's not the narrative, right? Yeah. That's not the that's not the ideological narrative that you say when you say like, well, I'm in the blockchain space. Like exactly. That, right. And that, that that may be changing over time because it already has changed over time. Yeah. And our awareness of what it means, like that's that, that's kind of interesting though. Like over time, I'm curious about how we talk about this stuff. If if the if the average user just understands better about the system that they're operating on and the underlying trust assumptions that run it. Because like what we did with Bitcoin was say like, it's not trustless. We just put our trust in basically the randomness of, of the, of the SHA-256 function. Yeah. And that's all the trust. All trust is there. That means we don't have to do it. We, we no longer need a human for it, for these particular things. But then you start getting into all the different proof of stake systems, those, those trust assumptions in the machine and the people that, and the people that run them are drastically different. And so like, over time, is it being in blockchain just going to mean you're more aware of like where trust is and how it moves? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think yes. I think I think if you're 23 today and you don't, you probably don't use Facebook. You probably use Instagram a little bit, and you start thinking about trust, or maybe you use Instagram a lot. You use TikTok. You, you start start thinking about trust. The blockchain narrative makes a lot of sense, right? This is a very clear compare and contrast. You know, old people use Facebook. They get filtered and censored in all these crazy ways. You want to use a system that doesn't have that same kind of filtering system where you know in advance who's going to do what, when. Um, yeah, I think a blockchain narrative makes a lot of sense uh, in, in that regard. Um, yeah. Curious how that, how like, because like that's my goal, right? And a lot of this is to make, because like that's, that's the issue with, with blockchain in general today is it is a drastically different um, way in which you interact with value in your life. Uh, yeah. This, like, the, you know, what we just standardly call the, the centralized world, like, you know, yeah. client server architecture and the apps that are built on top of it like has social consequences of forcing you to offload responsibility for convenience in, in, in every way, shape or form. And that's how we built yeah. the internet. Right. And so when you talk to the average person who uses the internet every day, they're like, I'll just click the forgot my password button because that's how everything works. And we built a technology that forces you to not, not be able to think that way. And so we're asking people to use this technology and, and, and then saying, well, like you can't do that anymore. They're like, well, that's how everything works. And so yeah. the goal, in my opinion, of a lot of this, like a lot of the applications we're building is to force people to start asking questions of like and, and take more responsibility back and have emergent like the emergent social consequences uh, is stronger awareness of what I'm responsible for and the education on how to be responsible for it. because you've been burned in small amounts that don't actually hurt you so that you learn the lesson. Yeah. So my first response to that is you can't save everybody, right? No, I, I but you can, you can have systems that help trend towards absolutely. a specific type of, of, of like relationship or a system that even makes it possible. Right. I mean, that's my goal. My goal is just to have, have it even be possible. Yeah. Right? That's a better way to put it. Because right now, if I want to do these things with Facebook, if I wanted to, I, there's, so like, you know, I have a hacker background as a kid. I was, you know, 
hanging out with hackers all the time. You want to, you want a certain, and also this is also just like an Alan Kay from computer science sort of history sort of thing present as well. Um, you want a system that you can examine. You want a system that you can inspect and you want a system that you can modify. And that, that's also like the open source thing, right? Like opens, you know, open source is sort of this freedom to tinker sort of concept. And, and when, to your point, when you have a centralized data store like Facebook, well, no one can tinker, you know, you can't tinker with that. That's not, doesn't work. And so, yeah, I think that, and just like when I was a kid and I was 14 years old and I wanted to know how the telephones worked, I wanted to know what every box with wires going into it or out of it, what was in there. Yeah, you know, I, I was a weirdo, you know, nobody else, you know, I had to go drive 40 minutes to find somebody else who was interested in doing that. You know, so like, I think that we're building these systems and ultimately a small group of people are going to be concerned about this uh, capability that we've, that we're granting them, that we're working so hard to provide them, but that will be, you know, sufficient, right? That'll be enough to change how society works. That'll be enough to accomplish our goals. But the vast majority of people um, are, are, you know, someone's going to figure out how to build a reset button on top and uh, you know, I forgot my password button yep. on top and that person's going to get most of the adoption, but they're going to be more competitive. You know, they're going to be able to um, outcompete the incumbents because those features that we've provided are actually better. You know, it is actually a more operable system. It is actually a better system for the end user. It is a better system for the middleman. It is really a, it is a better system for everyone but the incumbents. And so by building those better systems, even if the user, you know, I don't know how, how long it will take before end users in mass take responsibility for their, for their secrets, you know, their passwords. I don't think they ever do. Yeah. But, but those that want to should have options to do so. Absolutely. And whatever, that's what I mean. Like, it's so like, and to, like add on to what you're saying, the having the option to do so helps put a little pressure on the people who build the same systems on top to not take too much control because like when everyone, if, if you're not, if you something happens to you based on an application that you're using, you don't like it, you don't have options to leave it. Then there's no forcing function for that company to change. Yeah, exactly. But the moment you make a bad decision and a portion of your, of your community leaves you based on that decision and goes somewhere else, then you're much more likely to, to, to not make it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you actually do see that in the blockchain space, right? Compared to, for as, for as little actual business that happens, you do see people join and leave communities based on bad behavior. I, I mean, the, I guess the counter argument, I think the great sort of case study in that for better or worse is Ripple. How many generations of people have come and left Ripple, right? I mean, people go join Ripple. They're like, oh, it's great. It's awesome. And they're like, oh, wait, no, it's actually this bizarre, weird banking scam. They don't do anything that they talk about. <laughs> yeah. And then they and then they leave Ripple, you know, as a youth, as a community member, they leave the Ripple community. The problem with that is that Ripple as an organization is still there. And there isn't a group of people like warning other people away. There isn't the incentive. But But you do see people enter and exit the Ripple community. Of course, I'm sure someone will tweet at me and say, I've been in Ripple the whole time. I'm I'm on my private jet right now, Rick. You need to shut your mouth. But those are the exceptions. The majority of people who are holding, you know, held XRP, made their money, and you know, they're fiat maximalists. 
and then they got out and and you know i wish them the best of luck and uh but yeah we do see that in the space or i mean there's other projects there's zombie chains i mean it's it's a really interesting phenomena but pe- people do um you do see more exodus again for better or worse in this space than i think you would in like the web 2 world mhm cuz they can yeah cuz they can. it's just it, and also it gives people a it helps with on-ramping significantly is say I want to get my mom involved with, she's like, he's asking about crypto. It's like, well, let's give you something that's comfortable, more comfortable. Start with Coinbase. It's hard. It's hard to mess up. You can, it's easy to get your, 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 your bank account in there, so on and so forth. And then when you're comfortable with this, we'll start talking about moving it into your own wallet and talking about how to secure that stuff appropriately. Right. And so like, Having these options that are small steps, incremental steps for regular people allow us to like handhold them in a way that doesn't require me to like just spend every day with my mom talking about crypto and teaching her things. It's like, all right, play around with this. These are the things you can do here. And when you're ready, we can move it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I, yeah. I think that's that is a good point that that the sort of uh, permissionlessness of the community uh, does provide those good on ramps. I, I I'm waiting for the the so Axie Infinity might be this actually thing I'm waiting for uh, a a system that people use for some other reason and don't I mean they know that it's crypto based but it's really you know the that's I think Axie Infinity is going to be a great way to onboard a whole group of people that otherwise wouldn't be using uh, blockchains at all. Um, I haven't seen this. Really? No. It's, I mean, I, I'm so in the weeds that I don't work. see projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so busy working. I have the same problem. Yeah. Um, Axie Infinity is amazing. I mean, I, I, I haven't looked at it as much as I've wanted to, again, because I've been working, but there's this documentary I watched, this 25-minute little, it's, you know, it's an ad. It's not really Website's well done. Yeah, yeah. But it's... Um, Let's put it on the thing here. I can shove it up here. Yeah. Share my screen. But yeah, it's this sort of uh, this game that you play of crypto and it's, you know, it's got its sort of clear pumponomics built in, but there's like whole villages in, in the Philippines where people make their living playing Axie infinity. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a play to earn type situation where like you can sit here and play it's like it's like being able to play candy crush or something like that but actually extract your money and like games and nfts and value for work is something that i'm very very much interested in because like the, you you build communities it's like I mean, let me let me give you this 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 my idealistic pitch of what we're trying to do here right and games play a big role into this I spend time doing something. I'm a part of a community. I spend real world effort involved in a community participating in it, whether that be playing a game and leveling up and gathering resources of that game or whatever it is. My ability to then leave that community with the value that I've created and take it elsewhere is amazing. Yeah. Right. I can... And whether that be reputation, resources, wisdom, experience, whatever, 
I can leverage the work that I've done in my real life to, and then I, and then I have, I can make choices. I can take some of that leverage and pay my bills if I'd like to, I can exit the community completely. Like, so that like, if I, if I re-entered, I could no longer, I'm not at the state that I'm in and I can bootstrap that. I can take that value and bootstrap starting a new persona in a different community. Yep. So it allows to dynamically change what I want to be focused on in the communities that I care about with like, that is somewhat metered by the real effort I put into those communities. Yeah. I mean, that's the use case. So in, in 2006 and earlier, I, I was in different botting communities for different games. And it, and it was that experience that actually, so, you know, prior to the Bitcoin paper being published, I started working on a patent to facilitate exactly what you just described. Like, how do I, in the patent, I give the example of, I have a world, a sword in World of Warcraft to tell you how dated this patent is. And I want to take it to second life. How do I do that? How do I take my sword that was created in World of Warcraft and have it do something meaningful in second life? How do I take that value from earning that sword mm. in one game and apply it in another? And um, it's a very blockchain-like um, mechanism, which is uh, how, you know, ultimately how I ended up in the blockchain space was trying to solve that, that very problem you just described. I've created sure. a bunch of value in a game. How do I get it out? Balance of power is a real, real bitch there. Yeah, well, yeah. So in the, in the patent, again, because it, you have to appeal to your existing audience, it, it was a... It was a um, it actually describes a web of trust model. It says like a web of trust model might be possible, but instead we're going to use a pri- you know public key infrastructure, P- traditional PKI. So the the there's a PKI. The developer, the IP holder creates a PKI. They then um, designate servers to actually run the game, and then the users also get keys that are registered in the PKI. And then um, your game in-game transactions are cryptographically signed back and forth. And then at the end of that, you get a receipt, and then you can take that receipt and show it to another game host, whether that host is in the same game or a different game, and then they will accept those items as valid because the signatures are, they'll check with the PKI, are these signatures yeah. valid, and then uh, you'll be able to move your items around. That's basically the patent. Um, and yeah, I said you could do it with like a decentralized PKI uh, in there. Um, and that, you know, the, so here we are. Um, yeah. <laughs> NFTs. Yeah, NFTs, right. So it's funny because I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, people are like, oh, Rick, you could chase after people. I mean, I, I made that, I did that as a, as an intellectual sort of pursuit. You know, I, I wanted to turn it into a business, but I quickly learned that that wasn't possible at all. And I, and I started it out of curiosity. I didn't say, oh, this is a path to riches. I, I was really curious about game protection. Um, uh, and then ended up with a patent as just sort of a, a side effect of that process. Um, so I'm really happy to see that. There's games like Axie Infinity, and there's a whole genre of them. It's it's developing a little slower than I than I thought it would. Actually, I thought that it would really catch on like wildfire because I thought that the network effects of different games interoperating in this way would be really big. Like I thought that you could now just run, you could sort of disintermediate um, uh, video game producers. So, you know, when you're a game developer, you have to go, or I'm sorry, video game publishers. Because when you're a game developer, you have to go to a publisher and the publisher is like, there's all this friction. It's a, it's a whole a convoluted process. But if the publisher just said like, 
you know, we interoperate on our chain and you can publish whatever you want if you comply with these rules, then like people can publish all sorts of games and then, you know, you can easily get users and there's a, there's a lot of benefits. Side games that then blow up to individual games based on the, like siphoning off a portion of that economy. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's, but it's also, yeah. And it's very uh, egalitarian in that, you know, you're all competing for attention, right? You're all games and the game that, you know, garners more attention in this moment gets more revenue. But at the end of the day, the publisher can just sort of sit back and they don't have to do much of anything. And they're able to collect their publisher fees without having to go through all the rigmarole that they have to now. And that was sort of my thinking even way back then. And I, you know, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that that's still going to happen. I think that, and then another thing that sort of, again, um, to tie back to some of our earlier conversation, I realized that finance is games. And I was like, wait, so this actually did happen because there's DeFi, right? Like DeFi yep. is what I'm describing. Oh, it's, 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 just, it's, it's, it's just gaming. It's just, it's yeah. just, you're playing with different rules and yeah. you need to understand the rules and how to find um, basically game theory on how to maximize your profit or you know, find the local maximum of, of interacting with it and do that thing and then take it elsewhere. That's what it's just it's each of these different projects slightly tweaks the rules a little bit and says this is and then so if you're able to understand that and you can probably that's where people are getting rich is they're able to understand that find things and, and the amount of automation associated with finding things is much better than traditional finance too. Yeah. Yeah. So one way to think about it is if you if you took the average, you know, the average series, if you took the average gamer who spent a thousand dollars on their gaming rig with the goal of becoming a professional gamer and a thousand dollars isn't that much. And you took that same thousand dollars and you put it into just like spray and pray DeFi, you know, which one of those people would be more successful? Like almost certainly the spray and pray DeFi guy would have much more to show for that time and, and money spent uh, as a, you know, in terms of profit than the professional gamer. Now, obviously people prefer professional gaming because of their passion for games, but, in terms of opportunity, I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot of smack about, you know, as some people are very critical of DeFi, but I think ultimately it is, it is a significant improvement, right? We should always strive to be better and, and do more. But, you know, your ability as a, as a human on the planet Earth to, or I guess really in the Western world, to be more honest about it, take $500 and make a, make a real living from that $500 is much, it's much more possible now with, with, even even with all the scams well this is something that we've created this is something that is i is a lesson that crypto has taught those who have been a part of it that is a lesson that has never been taught another any other time in the world as, as far as i understand and that is thinking like a rich person actively thinking about what money you have and what work it's capable of doing And then rebalancing that appropriately based on new information. So like the ICO boom probably started a good portion of this because people were actively thinking about what value do I have? How is it distributed across my portfolio? And how is it working over time? And then thinking about how to then reallocate to maximize the amount of work it was doing. And by work, I mean making them gains. Yeah, Uh, And so... That's something that most like that's a mentality that most rich people have in terms of how do I 
assign my value to places that do the work I want done because they've already satisfied their, their financial needs for living. Right. And so it's started to teach those lessons to people of money does work too. And these are the skills you need to have to think about how to, how to do that appropriately and how to navigate that ridiculous world of kind of false narratives, scamminess, incompetence, uh, good projects that, that, that VCs typically like, spend their time navigating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it yeah, it has democratized. I is the word people like to use that, that yeah. process. A- absolutely. Um, and I, and I think that that is, you know, I, another thing I say to people every once in a while is when I started working at consensus, I was very, very skeptical of everything that was going on around me. I really didn't understand what was going on. I, I was very confused. And, and I left still being pretty confused. And then years, <laughs> years later, I, I really started to like certain things start to click because it took, it took me because I wasn't in crypto really at all. Like I said, I had sort of done I was in the hacker scene and like a computer enthusiast. So I knew about all the technology. But I didn't know anything about the community. The first time I interacted with the crypto community was when I met Joe Lubin in November of 2014. I mean, that was the, my first. It's an interesting first person to meet. Uh, exactly. And so <laughs> it took me years of interacting, you know, less so with him, but also with other people before I really started to understand what the mentality was, what people were trying to do, why they were trying to do it. And, and so there was a lot of people that I still don't agree with. I'm, I'm not interested in just making a bunch of money and moving to Puerto Rico. That's not personally interesting to me. Um, I, I don't find, I don't think those people are villains or anything, but I, I, it's not what interests me. And, um, and, and so, and so for when I first started, I was like looking for the old ladies, right? I was like, where's the old lady that's getting scammed out of all their money that may, you know, a lot of people see this today and, you know, it's frustrating for me because the tether narrative is, is, is this in a, in a different disguise, right? It's like, People who rally against Tether as opposed to just not hold it, right? There's a whole group of people who don't say anything, right? They, 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 they think, oh, Tether's a scam, so I don't hold it. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the people that go around and say, oh, Tether's a scam, and they yell it from the mountaintops and the no-coiners because they think there's some old lady somewhere being, being robbed by Tether. It's like, no, that's never going to happen. You know, it's never going to – the people who are, are transacting directly in Tethers have to have a million dollars of Tether to do that. Tether doesn't talk to you if you don't have less, if you have less. That's not their demographic. Yeah. (laughs) There's no old ladies out here who are like, oh, I took my $100,000 life savings and put it in Tether and then Tether went to zero. Everyone I've talked to who holds, who, who transacts directly with that company is doing millions of dollars a day or, you know, a month or something. They're not. And, and yeah, and it's like, I can't, I can't, I can't have a whole lot of sympathy for if those people lose that money. Like, it's really, it's really hard for me to be like, oh, this guy, while he was on his yacht, lost $2 million worth of tether. He should have known better by now. Yeah. (laughs) In his daily float. Okay. Like, and so it took me years of being in the space before I was like, and same thing with ICOs. It's like, you know how hard it was to participate in an ICO? Like it was, there was so much friction. You need to be significantly technically challenged. Yeah, there's so much friction on the technical side. So if somehow you're a 17 year old and you lost fifty thousand dollars investing in an ICO, I'm just shrugging my shoulders. You had to go through so much work to lose that money. You had so much time to stop and think. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, 
sign that transaction. Maybe I shouldn't have typed that command line uh, payment command into Geth from the command line. You know, it's like you have to do so much stuff. I'm like, there's so many barriers. I just, I even still, I just don't see a lot of, and I and I don't use Binance. There's a lot of other tools out there that probably are more user friendly that sort of undermine my argument. That was the, that was the question: is like, what do we do when those barriers are gone? Because we're actively working on user experience and making it more streamlined for people to do that type of thing. The ICO boom happened because we standardized the ERC twenty and lowered the barrier of entry for people to to just create a token. Yeah. And so, like every time we we lower those barriers. We have these booms. NFTs, same thing. We've like Absolutely. we've 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 rallied around the idea of the ERC seven twenty one and the infrastructure associated with moving them around. That infrastructure couldn't exist until we had the standard, so on and so forth, right? So every time we do that, and then we make tools that allow people to access them easier, MetaMask gets better, wallets get better, so on and so forth, uh, and we make places where it's not so expensive, L twos and side chains, then we keep lowering the barrier and making the experience better. And then that narrative you just gave of this isn't my this this isn't the old lady's problem becomes less and less of a narrative that's that's true. Yeah. What what then? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think I think by that time, honestly, I think that there'll be a lot of uh, regulated L2s. You know, I think there'll be a lot of roll-ups that are a hundred percent, I mean, you know, operated by the feds or completely regulated and so what happens when you build things on top of decentralized stuff is you can yeah. add constraints. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that I, I, I'm up. I mean, I do think that there will be there hasn't been that, you know, crisis um, in the space. I was, I was hanging out with some good friends of mine last night and they're talking about like year to date, like it was like five hundred and sixty million dollars or something has been lost to DeFi. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something I think things around five hundred million for 2021 to yeah. hacks but that was because 700 million had been returned the the total yeah. number that was stolen was over a billion so and only in this space did they return most of it so they can get away with it right well and again the hacker in me and the hacker scene a lot of these people are high schoolers you know a lot of these i i keep saying this to people because i think that when you're a certain age it, you forget but a lot of these twitter anons the reason they're anons is because they're kids and and they they're minors and they can't they can't participate in the stuff. They're in high school. They're they're skipping they're skipping math class to go write a solidity contract. So I would prefer them to be normal because they can participate in the stuff. Yeah, they yeah, just don't well, know they can. Well, or their parents will stop them, or a regulator will stop them, or whatever. But right, Maybe. I mean, I agree. I I wish we were more open about that. But you just wait for them to turn eighteen or whatever and move on. But yeah, so <laughs> I, I I think a lot of these hackers. Yeah, they weren't. They didn't have the opsec. They're not professional. They're not. They're not professional um, criminals. They're kids. They're college students or or high schoolers, and and, and so they they committed this massive crime. But they're smart enough to know that they don't have a way of getting the money out if people are chasing after them, because they're not professional. That's you know, if professional criminals were really deep in the space, we'd we'd all be ruined. I mean, we'd all be everything would be dosed all day. You couldn't you couldn't transact with anything. Everything would be eclipse attacked. Everything would be BGP hacked all the time. But the but for whatever reason, I mean, thank goodness, I guess even the professionals are saying, okay, well, I'll just make a tenth of what I steal and I'll just go through this sort of 
path of least resistance with the high school. I'll just I'll just sneak in and pretend to be a high schooler with these kids and I'll and I'll make my living that way. Um, and so in that sense, I had never really thought of it in these terms before, but it makes me very optimistic that that the old lady risk will will continue to be um you know they robbed my mother is is going to be is going to not happen very often because we do have a, a very uh emergent but we have a system of self-policing is the, write- is the narrative going to be they robbed my mother but they gave it back and now she knows better yeah yeah <laughs> it's that's going to be the standard like, like this is this is how you give wisdom is you you steal their money and give them give it back <laughs> I, I mean i i think that's beautiful i i can't i can't imagine a better honestly i have a hard time imagining a better world to be entirely honest <laughs> hey you can't do it that way here let me tell you why yeah let me show you because that's the other thing i i mean i i used to be i'm still very argumentative but i used to be much more argumentative and 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 the reason I stopped is because I I realized that people weren't learning anything from arguing with me. You know, me winning an argument. I mean, I learned this. I was like, you know, seventeen or something, right? It's like, you know, winning an argument doesn't persuade people that they they. It's not learning. They're not learning from you verbally abusing them until they agree with you. That that's not <laughs> a, a method of pedagogy. Or it's a very poor method, um, and and so yeah, you have to show people, it, you, and and that's just a human uh, a human trait, and it's frustrating at times. But you have to be willing to beat people up to to make your point. I mean, and that's just you know you have to be able, you know if you're saying I, I want you to understand blockchain security. Oh, you don't understand it. Well, then this guy over here is going to rob you, and then you and then you'll understand it because I, me trying to explain it to you wasn't wasn't doing anything and of course you give the explanation but how much time do you spend arguing with people about you give the explanation and they're like no you're wrong you say okay well i'll see you after you're robbed don't i don't want to say i told you so but i will yeah i'm happy to (laughs) yeah i'd rather not i'd rather you just listen to me the first time but if i have to tell you so yeah i'll do that too and i've i've helped some people recover funds and I, i I mean, it's an ama- it's amazing to watch people go through that process of losing funds or having a, a project go wrong or having something go wrong. And then, and then their eyes sort of open up. And um, yeah, I mean, on one hand, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you're a physicist, right? These aren't nuclear isotopes, right? We're, we're not about to ignite the atmosphere, right? This is pretty, when it's all said and done, even though some people are harmed, um, it is relatively low risk. And yeah, I mean, a lot of these, crazy you know pancake swap hacks i mean let them happen you know oh yeah i i i I tend to agree with you and uh i guess wrapping up is there any topic you would have liked to talk about or brought up or or discussed that we didn't talk about i mean there's a lot of stuff that there's a lot of stuff i want to talk about in the space I, i mean i think you want to do it again we should do another. We should do another one in the new year. I'll probably have a project to announce. Hopefully by that time. And then, um, the other thing is just, yeah. I mean, I I really want, uh, I really want people to start thinking about a multi-chain world more logically. And I and I want people to, you know, the solu- We've talked about this in the past. The solution to data availability is to hold your own data. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I want people to start 
really thinking that through more and and building i mean that's what we're working on is building systems where users can hold their own data and i think just getting people into that mentality um and it's i need this so i own it like it, yeah and when you speak so like i want to discuss that a little bit thinking about a multi-chain world um exact a long time ago bitcoin started with ethereum there was the narrative argument picture of the future where everything lived on one chain. It's yeah. quite clear, regardless of whether or not that's technically feasible, it's not, that it's that's not the world we're going to live in. Correct. Is is there will be multiple chains and a scenario where a single asset that you own lives across a bunch of them. That's right. And you're going to need to be able to navigate that world of figuring out what you own and where it lives and what it's capable of doing based on where it lives and the security associated on where it lives and how to move it around. Hopefully we can build tools to help that. But in the meantime, it's going to be real hard. Um, and along with that, every time you create this network segmentation, if you want to call it that, yep, there is different data structures that live there that don't give a shit about anything else. And that has to live somewhere too. And that has to be taken care of and watched and so on and so forth. And so like, and then bridges add levels of complexity because those need to be watched because they have different trust assumptions. And so like being able to navigate this multi-chain world is going to be very difficult. And the tools required to build them are also very difficult if you would like to make them usable at all. Yeah. That's what we've been working on for the last four years. I mean, you kind of anticipated. That. <laughs> I mean, it was very, it was funny. I mean, you, you touched on points that we touch on in our in our materials that we're working on. I mean, it's very difficult to how do you manage an asset in a multi chain world? How, if you have an asset and it's on three different chains and they have three different block times and they're each sort of sovereign in their own right, like there is, it's not like an L one, L two, L three. It's like they're all L ones, but you have an asset on all of them. What do you what do you do? So yeah, so that's definitely the technology that that we're working on, and um, the the it's not like a surprise. But what you have to do is you have to take all those different formats of those different chains, convert them into a common format, and then have a process for continuously converting them into this common format, processing on the common format, and sending data back down to the unique chains. And how do you maintain all that state? And remerkalization is expensive. How how do you do that? There's no there's no um, I don't think there's any theoretical uh, uh, shortcut to remerkalization. Um, it, it's necessarily uh, an involved process, um, and so yeah, how are we going to handle that? I, I think I think we have an answer at, at Vulcanize when we have our new name. You'll see, but yeah, we work very closely with Protocol Labs on on doing this. We use we leverage IPLD. Uh, we rely heavily heavily on IPLD. It, it wouldn't be possible without uh, that foundation. Um, we're probably going to end up relying on Filecoin as well for our, sure. our long-term archival um, because it's because it's IPLD compatible is the, is the basically the That's reason. That's the main reason. That makes sense. Yeah. And, um, and we're going to continue, obviously, to support all the other L1s that we work with. But yeah, you have to have a... My, my, well, what it is... So my, my dad's a lawyer and my mom's a librarian. So I, I think a lot of... I was, thinking about contracts and smart contracts and the law and code is law and all this stuff. I mean, that's all very like, 
sort of like almost like in my DNA, I guess is what I'm arguing. And then on the on the data availability side, I, you know, I talked to my mom about archival stuff when I was a kid, just like a you know, because I was a weird kid. I just asked him about archival. <laughs> right? So, and and I've worked and I've worked in archival uh, data, you know, making sure that you know um, an artist's data is available. I was doing this in like 2014, 2015. You know, this guy has all this digital uh, artwork that he's created of photography. So, so he's a photographer. So, but photo- but cameras are no longer. You know, he knew how to archive his film. He didn't know how to archive his hard drives, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so, I was working with him on on how to do that. How do you archive your hard drives? And people right now in the NFT world, they're like, well, how do I archive? You know, the artists in the NFT world because there's a lot of artists. And you're a visual artist. You're like, oh, well, I know when I make my prints, I send my prints to the archive. They have that whole workflow already sorted out for their physical items. And they're like, well, how do I do that with an NFT? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the direction that they're looking at it from. And it is a data availability. It is the data availability problem. And, and so, mutability for that matter. Like, yeah, ab- absolutely as well. Right. And, and what happens when you're, what do you need to put in the archive? Because the, the, the crazy thing is you have to put the source code in the archive. You have to put the compiler in the archive. You have to put a lot of stuff in the archive. You can't just put, the 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 IPLD the the image IPFS. hash like yeah you can't just throw the hash in the archive and be like we're done you have to put in a whole stack of of stuff in the archive and then have people I mean the real way to do it which which we will eventually get to in the blockchain space but it'll be a while is you have to have people like the Internet Archive who actually run the old hardware and update the software to run you know they build emulators to run on new hardware. So that mm-hmm. you can continuously run that old software on on newer and newer hardware. That is that is a fascinating topic. Yes, that I would love to dive into. Absolutely, for sure. Because I worry, and like part of that discussion, I think we should have this maybe like off, you know, off show later episode, whatever. Is resources required to do this type of stuff? And that becoming a barrier of entry in itself. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll we can keep it low for a long time, and I think I've seen enough tech generations where I think that it'll be a barrier for certain people, but it it won't. Other people will make their money addressing that problem. Yeah, there's definitely like that's infrastructure as a service. Yeah, and, and cloud based growth. But when you talk about data ownership and the ability to do so, what does that look like? Because, you know, you want people to be able to participate, at least, with modest hardware and then understand the trust connections that they're making with other people based on housing the stuff they can't do themselves. Yeah. So I've been using I, I tried to build a workflow where I used a micro SD card instead of uh, a ledger. Right, because no offense to Ledger, but they they held on to that fifteen fifty nine upgrade for so long. I was getting murdered. I was like, if I could just keep my key offline by having it on a micro SD card, I'm in a better position in terms of compatibility. You know, future proofing all this stuff. It's less tooling for MetaMask, right? If MetaMask could just read my private key off of this uh, hard drive that's actually on my phone, or I could take that hard drive and put it in my computer. Um, that sort of thing. And, and so I think those sorts of tooling changes uh, are going to happen. Um, 
And um, yeah, and people will will have those options. But again, we have to build those tools. So that's what we're working on at Vulcanize. I, I know with 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 uh, Status, you folks are working on similar. Well, I have some things in the in the pipeline that we'll be announcing a lot next year. Yeah, I'm 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 transitioning into more of a product shill role and management role, I guess. <laughs> so you'll hear a lot about that stuff later. <laughs> But I, I'd imagine, like based on what we're doing, it sounds like we're we're in a very similar vein. So we'll probably talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Great. So thanks for coming on the show, and see you on the internet. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. <laughs>